Welcome to the Maximum Theater and Performance Podcast. This is Jose Solis. Today, we speak to Joe Deeps, a composer and multidisciplinary artist who is taking opera outside the gilded halls of the 19th century and right into the 21st. His projects have expanded the meaning of opera and have taken place in warehouses and museums. In his latest work, Oyster, he takes a look at folk music archivist Alan Lomax and how he developed a system that grandfathered Pandora, Spotify, and other music services. Enjoy the show. We are here today with Joe Deebs. Joe, thank you for joining us. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. Uh, my pleasure. So I've, I'm very curious about the idea of, for Oyster, because it's an opera about Alan Lomax, right? Right. And I find it really interesting that Alan was, you know, John Lomax's son. So he's from a family of musicologists and people who I think thought in music in a way. Would you say that you had an upbringing similar to to Alan's? Uh, not at all. My parents are certainly not musicians or composers, certainly. They're, they're definitely not folk song collectors. So I came at this from, a, from a, my own direction. I mean, what are your interests in, in, in what you do then? Well, I, I came to New York about 20 years ago, and I arrived here as a composer, but as a composer that wanted to collaborate with other artists. So I began to work with a art collective called Gale Gates in Dumbo. This is 20 years ago and in a, in a warehouse where we had an art gallery and big sort of immersive installation performances that we did. Uh, and I did that for about seven years. And over the course of that, I started to develop my own theatrical work. I did my, my first opera called Strange Birds in, in 2001. And since then, I've developed a number of pieces that I call operas. And uh, sometimes, depending on who I'm speaking with, I, I might need to explain a little bit what I mean by opera because I, 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 I'm certainly not writing in the conventional style of, of a 19th century European opera that you might find at the, at the Met. Uh, but I'm certainly working with voice, music, theatrical context, the whole visual world putting it all together. Did you ever get, you know, when you, when you first started, did, did you ever get a sense of, like, you know, kind of, like, perverse pleasure by having all, like, the, you know, like, the, the, the mad kind of opera purist clutch your pearls when you were, like, I'm, I'm doing opera. It's just not at the Met. Yeah, I had a, well, <laughs> this makes me think of something that happened at my very first opera, which was in this warehouse art space that I'm telling you about. And it was called Strange Birds. I was, uh, there was no orchestra, I was DJing it uh, with a bunch of orchestral records, so I was kind of doing a mashup of like, you know, Sibelius and Mahler and Beethoven, and that was, the, that was the score. And then I had a ensemble of four singers that were singing melodies without words that were all derived directly from song sparrow melodies. So, hence Strange Birds, the name of the show, they didn't sound exactly like birds. I slowed down the, the melodies so that the, they became very lyrical and they worked harmonically. But certainly in terms of a conventional opera, it, was, it wasn't that. But what was, what was funny about that particular one is that it was listed in The New Yorker right underneath like La Boheme or something that was at the Met at the time. <laughs> and so I actually had quite a few people that came expecting something a little bit more conventional. I, I do remember one one, one woman who was, was uh, 
clearly an opera goer because she had you know the uh, fur coat and she had a New Yorker magazine on her and and she was so mad at me and she she really she really was mad because it, oh. it was loud and it was uh, not what she was expecting. But, but uh, was she pleased when she left or did she not stay? Well, she didn't really say, but uh, well, I can say a lot of people were pleased. So I'm not <laughs> saying that it was this. this uh, tortuous event or anything, but it was certainly something that, that uh, would be unexpected for someone expecting a classical opera. In an interview that you did, I don't remember where I saw it exactly, uh, where I heard it actually, you mentioned something that I had never thought about, and you mentioned how opera now, like, you know, in the 19th century, required like hundreds of people working to make it happen, except now we also have computers mm -hmm. making it happen. Like, computers are what you know, what helped the audio, the light, the set, and everything. So, it, it, you know, it, it, it's interesting to me that we are still, well, not, 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 not you, obviously, but people are still trying to pretend like opera is this, like, completely, you know, computerless uh, art form. Right. So, yeah, was that, is that also part of why you uh, – bring computers to the center of the work you did to remind people about that? Well, I'm just thinking about our contemporary world and our society, our culture, and it's a very digital, technologically driven culture. So that becomes a lot of what I talk about. It's not so much because I, I'm, I'm trying to thwart the classical acoustic opera tradition or anything like that but just but about the the tradition the, opera is one of the one of the few art forms that really where the institutions really keep it in another time and place because the truth of the matter is if you go to the Met for example they commission some new operas but for the most part, you're really listening to 18th and 19th century European classical music. And I love some of those operas, but it seems very, very removed from where we are right now as a culture. And if one imagines where those operas were in the 18th and 19th century, uh, they were actually quite connected to their society and culture at the time and talking about issues that were of contemporary concern they were using a musical language that was very current. So really, I feel like I'm making operas, but I'm using our current musical language and set of possibilities, which involves laptops and computers and electronic music, certainly. Once you do that, then you sort of have to ask the question of whether you need that operatic singing voice, and you don't, because the operatic singing voice is actually a, uh, an engineered instrument that's performed beautifully by opera singers that sing at the Met. So uh, it's great in an acoustic hall, but once you start to work with electronics and microphones, then you don't need that immense projection that's sort of the uh, quintessential opera voice that people are expecting. Once, once you have a microphone, you can speak you know, very quietly like I am now. I'm in front <laughs> of a microphone. You can hear everything I'm saying. So you certainly couldn't hear uh, Renee Fleming if she started to do that at the Met. So there's a reason why that voice exists that's actually a technological reason to begin with. Hmm. So opera is actually, the thing about technology, of course, is the opera has always been highly technological because it's always been an enormous operation that's involved a lot of people, stage mechanics, 
an orchestra is a highly technological device, machine. It's just not digital. Right. So, you know, since, since you touched on how you think that opera, and I completely agree, like opera, I mean, I'm definitely not a classical like, opera expert, but it seems kind of stuffy and kind of, you know, uh, removed from, kind of inaccessible, uh, I would say. And uh, are you interested also, by default, I guess, in making opera democratic and having people who don't feel maybe like they belong at the Met come see opera and be like, hey, I love opera? Yeah, well, you know, that's an interesting question because I, no, I'm not being consciously accessible. I'm not being consciously, uh, I guess, democratic in terms of making something I feel more people will like because I, I think if people want to hear music on stage and they want to hear something really accessible, they might, you know, they might go see a musical. They might uh, watch a film that has a lot of music in it or something like that. So it's not so much that. It's really just much more... I am situating myself in a very current environment. And also, I, I, I am something of a, um, I guess, uh, indie <laughs> opera maker. You know, I don't, I don't have uh, the equivalent of a label. Like, I don't, these aren't, these, this isn't a commission from a major opera house and orchestra. This is something that I'm doing with a, a small company that I've worked with for a long time. So then there's also the question of, you know, the, the, the resources, what you can do outside of the mainstream system. Right. As long as I, as I, I mean, as far as I understand, a lot of your work is also, you know, like art in response to art, like mm -hmm. the piece that you did at the Watermill Center. Right. Uh, and, and I'm really fascinated by that because it's not, especially nowadays, it's not very common to see, you know, artists trying to engage with other artists in a right. dialogue through their own mediums. So can you talk a little bit about what draws you your interest to that? Well, the interest is that, I, well, the reason why I'm interested in opera in the first place is because it's the, 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 the biggest mongrel of a form. It, it already involves so many art forms. It already involves literature and involves music, it involves theater, it involves visual art, especially if you're doing something like this piece where there's a very strong visual element. So already all of those things are in play. And also, I mean, the, the kinds of operas I've always been interested in, there's a whole philosophical aspect to it. There's, there's an idea at stake, not that there isn't in other forms as well. Uh, so I've always been interested in interfacing with all sorts of different art forms. So the piece we did at Watermill, for example, that is, that's an opera in a particularly stretched sense of, the, of the, the word, although I'll continue to use that word even with that piece, where we responded to a collection of sculptures uh, in, in the collection of Robert Wilson, the, the, the well-known theater director and opera director. He has a, a collection of, of uh, art objects from around the world that are non-Western art objects. So we thought it would be interesting to to bring those objects out into the large space where people do performances there and just respond to them and make the sculptures half of the performance in terms of the performers. So their presence in the space was just as important as us as human beings, and the idea was to have some kind of a, a vocal encounter with the, with the sculptures. And it was also a, a, a piece that, that was open as long as the gallery was open, so it wasn't really a beginning, middle, and end sort of thing. It was, uh, it was a, a space and uh, an experience that you could come and go. 
That's really interesting. Uh, uh, have you read yet, you know, the, that famous, well, infamous, I guess, by now, Quincy Jones interview that's doing the rounds all over the Internet? Uh, no, you'll have to fill me in. Oh, okay. That. Well, anyway, you know, it's, it's a must-read. It's, 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 it's completely insane. But there's a, a part of the interview where, where, you know, he talks about how one of his, his most, uh, his favorite discoveries in all of his life was when he saw an ancient map of, you know, when the continents were closer together before they split or something. Okay. Panagia, is that yeah. what they call it? Yeah. And how, you know, like he says, for instance, that Africa was like next to China. Mm -hmm. So he says that he has this theory that, you know, beats and rhythms were inherited to different continents mm -hmm. through Africa because of that. He's like, why, that's maybe why, you know, like drums in Chinese music are similar to drums in African music. Mm -hmm. And it obviously made me think about the Lomaxes. Right. So why, you know, why Alan Lomax? And did your fascination start with John and other people in his family as well? Uh, no, Alan Lomax is quite, uh, well, for me, Alan was more famous than his father, who I found out after I had learned about Alan. Alan Lomax, I think most people know about him as someone who is involved in American folk music and someone, not just folk music, but also blues, and that he, for example, recorded Muddy Waters and Lead Belly for the first times and recorded Jelly Roll Morton, you know, a vast archive, actually, of Jelly Roll Morton, especially these oral histories that he did. So he's famous, really, I think, as an American folklorist and, and uh, blues expert. Later in his life, he got really interested in the whole world, and that's when he started to work with world music. I wasn't really familiar with that. I read a book by John Swed that came out uh, seven or eight years ago called The Man That Recorded the World. Mm -hmm. Alan Lomax is a really great book. Uh, and I bought it because I wanted to hear more about what he was doing in the 50s and the folk music revival and all that. But then I found out about the stuff that he did later in his life that was really his life project in the end because he sort of reached this pinnacle of what he could do as being the world authority on folk songs. And he was in his 40s and he really was an ambitious person. And it's like, what am I going to do next? I guess it's going to be the entire world. So he went out and he really started this massive project to really understand the entire world, a total, total uh, system and understanding for, for music from around the world. So that, that ambition was fascinating, and it also is highly uh, questionable in some ways to imagine that really one can understand something as vast as the entire world or, or even another culture that you're, you're not from, uh, especially with, when one puts a, a set of grids and numbers on things. So it, it brought up this all of all of these um, all of these interesting things that were that were contradictory. There were some things that were really fascinating about it: his ambition, his actually his skill in building this system. Uh, but then there's also the whole cultural 
aspect of it that seems like there's all sorts of problems built in with the idea of putting all of the cultures of the world into some kind of a numerical system that then is encoded and then you get all this data from and then you come up with results based on that. Uh, so that was, you know, kind of this problematic aspect of it. But it's the mix of the two that really drives me because it, if this was just like a you know, some kind of a critique of Lomax, and that's all it was, I would have no inspiration to write <laughs> music. And it's not that. I think Lomax was a fascinating, amazing, ambitious person. Uh, so it, it's actually the two of those together that, that makes it interesting for me. I was really curious because, you know, when you're growing up and even, I guess, as an adult, people tell you, like, you're either, like, a left-brained person or a right-brained person. Uh -huh. Alan Lomax seems to have been both. Mm -hmm. And it's... I mean, I've, I, I, I've had uh, musicians, I suck with numbers. Like, I, I, I don't even want to tell you how long it took for me to memorize like, the multiplication tables when I was in the third grade. <laughs> I've always been terrible at it. But many musicians have pointed out to me how there's numbers in music and how there's equations in music. And I just find that to be really fascinating and, and confusing to, to an extent. And in, in Oyster, you're turning, you know, like, Alan Lomax turned music into numbers, which now you're turning into music. So are you a, lot, a left and right brain kind of person, or does, do those concepts even make sense to you that way? Absolutely, yeah. I think, I think there's a couple of questions uh, embedded in that. And yes, I think I, the, the right brain, left brain uh, thing is always what's at the core of, I think, all of the pieces that I, I've done some kind of relay between intuition and, you know, just music on, on its visceral, in a, in a visceral way, and a very conceptual way of thinking about things. It might be about computers, but it might just be just a very conceptual thing that's not visceral. Is that bringing those things together that's, that's, that's exciting for me. But yeah, Lomax, uh, well, I think it would be useful to just explain this process that right. we're doing, because it... <laughs> right. it, it uh, It's actually quite simple, but one has to understand a little bit of Alan Lomax's system to understand what we're doing. So Alan Lomax, what he did is he, he invented a system called Cantometrics. So it, it's the word itself is a neologism that means measurement of song, so Cantometrics. He uh, assembled this vast team that involved like many, many people from every uh, ology you could imagine. So he had psychologists, he had linguists, he had anthropologists, sociologists, and he had this interdisciplinary human sciences research team in the 60s. And the idea was to find a way that you could codify the songs of the world based on their behavioral characteristics. And that was the main part of it. So his, what he did is he made a list of characteristics of songs, exactly 37 of them. And there were things like tempo, things like pitch, things like, you know, rhythmic cohesiveness, things that make sense to a Western musician. But then there were other things like what is the level of glottal activity? Or what is the nasality of the voice? What is the level of nasality? what is the social, political organization of the vocal group. So he had these characteristics that he was analyzing that weren't really traditional music characteristics. They were much more like anthropological or even uh, physiological things. And he put them all into a system that had 37 lines 
And then he had a team of people that were listening to thousands and thousands of songs, and they had cards that they just scored each line of this 37-line system. And they would listen to a song, and they say, you know, melody five, uh, vocal organization, be a three, depending on what they were listening to. After he had assembled all of these profiles, he put them onto punch cards, put them into an IBM 360 mainframe computer, and chugged away at a lot of statistics and numbers and came up with songs that were kind of like virtual songs or ideal songs because they were an average of all of the numbers that he got from the individual songs. So he would have a song that was Africa. The modal profile is what he called it. That, that was the average of all the numbers from all the songs from Africa resulted in one profile, one song. And so that is what we're using as our score. We are taking those numbers and we're then using that as the score to generate a song that theoretically should have something to do with the original song because it started with real songs went into numbers, into the computer, and we're taking, reversing the process, turning them back into songs. So that's sort of the experiment of the opera, to see what happens when we do that. It reminds me, I remember a few years ago when some uh, medieval art student found, magnified some notes that Bosch had drawn in someone's butt in uh -huh. the Garden of the Earthly Delights, and then she played the, the song. Oh. It was, like, really, really fascinating. I want to know who that is. That sounds... Interesting, interesting project. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode of the Maximum Theater Performance Podcast. If you have questions, comments, or opinions that are different from our own, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at Maximum, and I'm at Jose Solis Mayen. If you enjoy the show, please leave a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we have merch. You can buy coffee mugs, tote bags, and stickers with your favorite Maximoisms. You can get to the store via maximum.com. All proceeds go to helping the podcast improve our sound quality. Thank you so much for listening. Theatrical media.